Our scripture this morning is Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to be back and uh, at home. And uh, Three Rivers Community Church is home. Everything else is weird and strange. And uh, if you've never been here before, this probably feels weird and strange to you. And if it does, I'd say acclimate. This is better. Um, it's good to be home. Um, to turn our attention to Revelation 31 to 6 in the church at Sardis, I just want to draw our attention um, to the reminder that, uh, again, Jesus and the gospel sort of center focus a little bit everything. Um, this, this is all about Jesus. And uh, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. If Jesus bores you, um, the coming kingdom is going to really be rough for you. Um, if Jesus bores you, if the gospel bores you, Three Rivers is going to bore you. Um, everything begins, hinges upon and ends in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, I continue to hear from some of you guys, you say, I've never heard Revelation taught like this. And, and maybe that's because we just keep talking about Jesus and not the future. And just might I remind you, the future has very little to do Ultimately, with the book of Revelation, it is all about Jesus, and, uh, and the future is held in his sovereign hand, and, and is under his foot, as a footstool. And so we're not going to focus an awful lot on the future, because we're going to focus on the content of the book, and that's Jesus. And once again today, I just want to put that footnote underneath there, this is going to be all about Jesus, um, believe it or not. The church at Sardis has a Jesus problem, and that's what we are going to deal with. Again, the book, uh, 37 times by my count, some guys count more, um, who have their Ph.D. already, so I say go with them. But by my count, 37 times the, the word throne is here, and emphasizing the fact that Jesus is sitting on that throne, which means he's the king, there's no other. There's no other God, there's no other ruler, Jesus is the king. And as the church moves forward in its mission, seeking to make disciples of the nation, the church encounters various difficulties. Particularly in this context, these churches are placed in the, in the hotbed of spiritual activity, of political environment of the Roman Empire, and facing difficulty and extinction and, and all kinds of hardship. Jesus speaks to John and goes to the churches. And John writes and he says to these churches, he encourages them, he reminds them he's king and lets them know what they need to know in order to stay on task, to stay in the mission, to do the work right. And I want to say to us, we have our hands in the game. And sometimes people misunderstand this. And, and, and I, just, I want to make it clear. When I commend you for being in the game, I'm by no means exalting you to a point of falling. Some people say, you know, you've got to be careful, man, because you talk about things you guys do as a church, and you've got to be careful or you're going to fall. And I'm like, dude, it's kind of hard to fall when you're already sitting on the bottom. We, your elders, don't play in an ivory tower. We don't sit at the nunnery or the whatever nunnery all day and, and hum and quote Scripture. We work just like you do. And I would like to think I could fall because I might be a little less stressed and a little more energized, but the reality is we grind it out every day just like you. And when I commend you and say you are in the game, it's because you are. And so I don't need to tell you, be careful lest you fall. I need to tell you, stay on task. Let's not drop the ball. We're in the game. 
We're fighting the war. We're fighting the war with you. And so as, as I can't think of another book that really is more applicable to us because we are in the game. You are in the game. You are fighting. You, you have your, your nose set toward the gospel and, and your hands to the plow and you're working. So I don't want to say to you, be careful lest you fall. I want to say, be careful lest you look away from the gospel. To some other way that may make it easier or, or, or may make it simpler. I want to say to us, let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's really keep our eyes, okay? So as we have our hands to the plow, we've got our skin in the game, and we're working, and we're fighting for the completion of the gospel. In Roman Floyd County and among the nations, I want to say to us um, from the church at Sardis, let us be awake and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, okay? So, I'm um, going to jump right in, okay? Uh, if you have uh, phone technology, uh, the notes in my format, as I see them are up on the blog, footnotes and everything, you can go there on your phone if you want to or any other device you have to take a look at it. Uh, if you want to go to the blog and print them later, you're welcome to do that. They're going to be up there every Sunday morning, so my encouragement to you is go print them in their full glory, or lack thereof, and bring them, because it's got everything on there. Um, I'm just going to give you a skeleton, because I don't want to print three pages. I have to staple them on Sunday morning. Um, so um, you're going to get a skeleton. Uh, so you've got a skeleton, or you've got a phone looking at the real deal. And uh, so we're just going to jump right in and, uh, and, and take Sardis on straight on, okay? Let me pray for us, and we're going to go, Father, I need your help. Um, I am absolutely, positively incapable of making sense of your word apart from the Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, would you teach, um, would you instruct, would you um, make sense of your word and exalt the the King? Do your mission of making Jesus look good, please. And I pray that you would uh, reveal blinders or reveal eyes that are blind, remove blinders, and cause us to see and savor the gospel today. And so we pray this in Jesus' name for your glory and our good. Amen. All right, number one, the church must test itself for deadness in life. If we come to the, the church at Sardis, I've, I've heard so many, so many people take this text and they talk about the dead church at Sardis and talk about how um, they needed some emotional fire, something to fire them up because they were dead. Uh, I want to... I want to say to you here, the whole idea of deadness and wakefulness here in this passage has nothing to do with an emotive fire. Absolutely nothing to do with an emotive fire. Uh, We don't need necessarily more emotion because we can be emotively jacked up and go to hell. Emotion really doesn't have a lot to do with the nature here of this this passage. Um, To set this up, there's a little geography and a little history here that that makes Jesus' language make sense. And and just as a side note here, I love how Jesus knows how to contextualize. There's a missiological lesson here. Jesus knew, understood the geography, heck, he created it. And so he got it. And so when he speaks to them, he knows their history and he knows the geography and he's speaking to them in a way that it, it makes sense. And so when we hear awake... We, we read on to that, all kinds of things, but just give you a little history here. Sardis, this little city, is built on a mountain. And it had an acropolis, a, a fortress on top of it, that was viewed as totally impregnable. Um, as a matter of fact, in, in their culture, they had a proverb to describe doing the impossible. And here's the proverb. To capture the Acropolis of Sardis. That was it. To do that impossible deed is like trying to capture the Acropolis of Sardis. It's like saying, that's hard as heck. They're saying, that's like trying to capture Sardis. That was their proverb. If you're trying to do something radically difficult, they would throw that on you. Man, that's like trying to capture Sardis. This fortress built on top of a a mountain was viewed as impregnable. But no less than five times in this city's history was it conquered. Twice, by Cyrus II in 547, 546, 
And by Antiochus the third in 214, when watchmen on the wall fell asleep and missed armies sneaking up on the city. So Jesus, knowing history, he knows all history, says to this church, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. You have a reputation for being awake, but you're asleep. And they understood historically, well, dang, that's kind of what happened when the watchman fell asleep on the wall. And they may have even known their names. We know Benedict Arnold. They probably knew whatever. Wow, yeah. Yeah, they were asleep and we got conquered twice from falling asleep. So when Jesus says to them, you have this reputation for being alive and you have this reputation for being all this, but the fact is you're dead. You are absolutely 100% asleep. In verse 2, wake up. Wake up. In other words, Jesus is warning them. He's warning them. And the point for us today is this. We, the church, three rivers, every church, All churches that claim the gospel must be testing themselves for deadness in life. In other words, we we have to always be looking to see whether or not we are awake and not capable of being conquered or whether or not we're asleep and capable of being conquered. Jesus chose these words for this church on purpose because of their history And they're so easily being conquered when they shouldn't have been so easily conquered. We take a look at the church and Jesus tells us he's going to build his church and nothing can stop it. And then we take a look and wonder, well, why does it seem like the church just gets snuffed out in American culture? Maybe that's asleep. It's not the church. Maybe the watchmen on the walls have fallen asleep and the armies have come. And the king has removed the lampstand. So I ask this question. I say from this passage that we, all churches, must test themselves for deadness in life. I ask this question, how do we we test ourselves? What what are you supposed to do to test ourselves? Well, I'm going to give you four uh, quick things here that we can use to test ourselves to see whether or not our watchmen are asleep. Point number two is going to really answer the question in a minute, what it is we have to have. I'll just give you a hint, it's called the gospel. Kind of a good thing. But how, how do we test ourselves to see whether or not that peace is being lived out? Because what the church at Sardis did is they weren't keeping it, they weren't doing it. They weren't taking the gospel and working out all the implications of the gospel in themselves and outside of themselves. And as a consequence, they looked like a really alive church that was awake, but in fact, they weren't keeping the gospel and therefore they were dead and they were asleep and the watchmen were missing the encroaching culture around them. So how do we test ourselves to make sure we are keeping this message? Number one... We've got to test to see whether or not we are being seduced by supply and demand internal ministry. See, this church has a reputation. They have a rep. They are known. And you don't get a reputation by doing nothing, right? Right? Unless you're known for being a slob or lazy. But they had a rep for being alive, which means they were doing stuff. And Jesus says, I know you've got a rep of being alive. But the fact is, that's not true. We can be busy doing stuff and be dead. I would argue that in, in our context in North America, the church looks alive. We spend billions on internal consumer ministries. Every year. And it's ministry that's designed to attract people from other churches to come to ours. And it costs people and time and resources. And there's lots of activity. But my question is, is that the mission? 
to attract people to internal services. And I would argue that can't be the mission. I would make the argument that that looks busy and it looks good because every time you report to the denomination, you have more numbers and you increase from last year and they'll bring you to conferences to tell your story and put a book out on how to do that at your place. And they'll pay for your meals and your airfare and your travel. But is that the mission? Could it be that there is in our context a seduction to ministry that looks busy when in fact it's a failure to keep the implications of the gospel? I think that could be the case. We don't do ministry to attract people. The gospel is our attractive message. The gospel is what attracts and draws. Not ministry. Because you can have good ministries that never preach the good news and people think, I'm a Christian. Because I go to a church. And that's not the standard. Jesus is going to ask, did you go to church, dude? Did you have a good experience? Were you very satisfied in the youth ministry or children's ministry? He's not going to ask that question. Could could it be that in our context, the temptation is to be seduced by internal comfortable ministries? We, we can't be that way here. We can never be that way here. Those things eat resources that then get taken away from gospel ministry. Because there's a very specific mission, and we'll get to that point too. Secondly, are we seduced by feeling invincible? I mean, for these guys, they, they were busy, looked good. Could we be seduced by feeling invincible because maybe we got our own place or, 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 or we, we grow to a certain level and we have our comfort in what we have, not who we worship? Perhaps that was part of their deadness. Is there anything that makes us three secure apart from the gospel is there anything we find our security in apart from the person and work of jesus is the person is the thing is it an income is it a resource is it something do i find myself having comfort in something other than jesus are we sober-minded about doctrine and doctrinal practices Do we think that because we hold a certain perspective or we hold a certain view that somehow that's okay without checking what we believe to see whether or not it's good or right? Because here's the deal. People practice spiritual things all day long and some of them are rotten to the core. Let me, let me give you my little standard. If it's not written, there's a good shot I'm not observing it. And I'm not saying that should be that way for everybody, but in my house, if it's not written, I'm not playing the game. The reason being, it can get abused real easy. Anything can get abused. I get that. So, I mean, I'm going to debate all that. My point is this. Is it written? Could we be seduced by things that look spiritual when, in fact, they're rotten? And we look spiritual and alive when, in fact, internally we're, we're dead. I've had, if I, if I have another person um, tell me what they're fasting for Lent, I may go jump in the kusa with a weight tied to my waist. I, I can't handle it. Because every time that happens, I, I keep hearing Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. When you fast, something about Jesus. He's, he's all right. I love him because he speaks to these things. And it's like we go Jesus ignorant when we come to some things, and Jesus said, when you fast, clean your clothes, your face, wash up real good, so nobody knows you're fasting. Because if they know you're fasting, that's your reward. They think you're spiritual. But when you fast, clean up, so that nobody knows but me, and the God who sees what's done privately will reward you openly. Does that count? Because we can look good. We can go to the service and get a cross painted on our head. 
Like, why? And, hey, what are you fasting for Lent? Nothing? I'm going to add a few things to celebrate the work of the cross? Maybe, I don't know. He purchased that for me. Find a way. I, I, I'm, I'm, here, here's my point. I'm not trying to bash or be crude or mean. I really am not. What I'm saying is let's be careful that we don't look alive when internally our motives are rotten. And there's some people who do that really well. You'll never know. And God rewards them because it's, it's, I'm, I'm walking toward that day of resurrection Sunday and I'm getting ready and I say amen and I want to be able to do it that way. But just because it looks alive doesn't mean it is. We have to always be sober-minded about doctrine and doctrinal practices. Does that, does that make sense a little bit? This church had a reputation of being alive when in fact they were dead. Here's the thing, ultimately. It's not about appearances. Some people often want to know whether or not we're a real church. Is that a real church? As opposed to what? As if there's like like levels of realness on a scale of one to five. And we're a one. I'm not quite there yet. And, and here's why. Because it, we don't have a building. They're like, is it a real, I'm serious, I get that question maybe once a week, is it a real church? <laughs> like there's a toy one or something, this one's, this one's like, a, it's make-believe, it's a hologram, I, I don't know. And, <laughs> and I don't really know how to answer that question, I just, I think so. The way I understand church to be, yeah, it's a real, the real thing, man, yeah, yeah, it's, it's sort of real. The appearances were not real. Because we don't spend 75% of the budget paying for a building. Is it real? No. It's not appearances. Is, the question is, is it right? Does that make sense? I'm just be straight up. We have people in our town, we have places in our town that look good, but inwardly, they are not the church. There's no reverence for what is written, there's no reverence for the gospel. And I'm convinced, guys, On the horizon for us is this question we better be prepared to answer. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Because on the outside it can look like the gospel. And you can make really cool videos. And people can really like your stuff. And you can look really sharp with like your your cool t-shirt or whatever. Your hip. But the reality is, is that the gospel? We better figure out evangelical that's a term that can often be confusing because there's a lot of people put themselves under the banner of evangelical who do not preach the gospel and what we don't understand is the word evangel means gospel so evangelical means i'm gospelical i believe the gospel we better figure that out because that's that's right there on the horizon what is the gospel message what is it? Better get that figured out. You hang here long enough, you will know that. Because we are all about that. Beginning, middle, end, all about the gospel. It's not about appearances. It is, is it right? Because you can look awake and be dead. And it's interesting, that's always man's perspective. Isn't it? David, the king. David, go anoint my servant, king. So what does Samuel do? He goes and finds Jesse. And Jesse brings in from the firstborn all the way. And he's looking, that's not the one, that's not the one. Jesse's like, well, I got one more. And he's out with the flocks. Sure you want to see him? He brings him in and, ah, that's the one. He says, I look not at the outside, but look at the heart. 
He can look good. Saul was a head taller than anybody in Israel. He was a moron. The question is, are we awake? Well, what is awake? I told you I was going to get to this in point two. The church must awake and keep the gospel. What is being awake? Being awake is keeping the gospel. Listen, listen to verse 2 and 3 carefully. Let's see if you can follow this through with me, okay? Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Read it again. Wake up and strengthen what remains is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Were they just not finishing the task? Were they not doing a good job at Sunday school? Were they not doing a good job at corporate worship? What does he mean? Your works are not complete. Verse 3 answers that question. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. What are their works that are not complete? The text doesn't tell us specifically. However, it gives us a very clear indication in verse 3 by reminding them to remember what they received and heard and to keep it. The question is, what did they receive? What did they hear that they needed to keep? Ten steps to being a good New Testament church, little document. Printed by Paul, which is a good book, you know, Zondervan, best-selling list. What was it? What did they hear that they needed to keep? Paul uses this language when he writes to the churches in the New Testament. He uses this language with Timothy. When he's talking about ordaining elders. And he says, give to them the message that you received from me. And you ordain men that will be able to keep it and hold it fast. Remember what you received and speak that message. What is he talking about? The gospel. It's the only message in the New Testament that mattered. The issue at hand was not how to do ministry better. The issue at hand was, was not how to be a better church. The issue was, are you keeping this message you've received? The gospel. You see, what they had received is the good news. Paul reminds the churches often to guard the message they've received. And since Jesus is the theme of Revelation, then no doubt the message of Jesus is what they've received and heard and need to keep. So I ask this question, how do you keep the gospel? Well, he says repent and do that work. In order to remember and keep what they heard and received, they would need to repent from not keeping the gospel. So what does keeping the gospel look like? I'm going to give you three ways, and this is probably as far as we're going to get today. Three ways we keep the gospel. And all three of these have to come under this heading, this understanding. That we understand the gospel to be the identity of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We we understand this gospel message begins with the very nature of who God is. We understand who we are. We understand the work of Jesus to be that God who made us but also came to die in our place for our sins, so that if we repent and trust in Him and come after Him, that He would give us His righteousness and take our sin forever. 
This is the skeleton sketch of, of gospel. Who God is, who man is, who Jesus is, and man's response to Jesus. Underneath the banner of the gospel work of Jesus and his personhood, here are three ways we keep that. Number one, it's the gospel personally applied. The gospel personally applied. What does that look like? Number one, we personally apply the gospel by loving justification. We keep the gospel by loving the cross of Jesus Christ and we boast in the cross. Paul said Galatians 6.14, may I boast nothing except how big the churches are I've planted. May I boast in nothing except my moral righteousness. I'm a good dude. May I boast in nothing except the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we keep the gospel personally by loving the cross of Christ and boasting in the cross as our standard of righteousness, not our works. Not what we do, not what we don't do. We boast in the cross, we preach the cross, we rest in the righteousness of Jesus, we lean on the righteousness of Jesus, and we remind others of that, we remind each other of that. We personally love the gospel. We love justification. Number two, we seek holiness. We seek holiness. Not because we need holiness on our own to be saved, but because once we know the King and the King has taken up residence in us, the promise of the new covenant is that He would give us a new heart that would desire His stuff. And so we pursue holiness. We pursue Jesus We pursue being like Him. The things that anger Him anger us. The things that make Him sad makes us sad. The things that make Him joyous make us joyous. We want to be like Him in every way. We want to be like Daddy. Holiness is the life of the Redeemer lived out in the redeemed. Holiness is the life of the King lived out in the servant. We pursue Holiness. Third, cultural Christianity passes away in favor of a passionate pursuit of Jesus. Cultural Christianity has to pass away in favor of knowing Jesus passionately and coming after Him hard. Cultural Christianity produces disengaged parents who teach God by cartoon rather than truth. We censor the scriptures for our kids because we can't imagine that they could somehow hear the prophets. I had a conversation yesterday at the breakfast table with my boys. I didn't bring this up because I'm not that spiritual. Because I was thinking about other fun things. And um, my kids, <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not kidding, this was brought up. You guys, my wife, I was totally surprised. Um, so I was thinking about working on an engine, a lawnmower engine, and having some fun tearing that thing up and doing some work on that. Because I enjoy that kind of stuff because I'm a redneck at heart. And, and so... My sons asked, Dad, how can Jesus on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can God separate himself from Jesus when Jesus is God? Or did that happen at all? I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We had an hour-long conversation on Jesus' use of Psalm 22 from the cross. Now, I'm going to be the first to confess, working with children scares me because I'm abstract, they're concrete, and I don't know how to do that at all. So that's why it took an hour, probably for some of you elementary school teachers, like, <laughs> you illustrate, you got an object lesson, and boom, they got it. I'm like, well, you see, there's this whole Trinity thing, and you know, there's this rabbinical technique, and I'm like, oh, gosh. So it took me a while, but 
what we do is, is, is we tell kids popular Christian culture stuff and it screws with good theology. God doesn't separate himself from the Son. Jesus is God. Jesus is screaming out the title of Psalm 22. And if you read the rest of that psalm, those disciples began to, who were engaging, recognizing, hey, that's kind of what's happening right now. They're wagging their heads, talking at Jesus. They're telling him to come down from the cross. David wrote that. thousand years, what? Uh, I'll be exalted among the nations. Dang. Jesus is saying something from the cross. Jesus was teaching them what he was accomplishing on the cross. From the cross. In his greatest hour of agony, he's teaching his disciples, listen to me. Look what I'm doing. I'm purchasing the nations now. And we want to tell our kids, well, God separated himself from Jesus. We want to cartoon it up for them. So somehow they've got this really weird thing going on in their head. And I'm so glad my little moronic children who ask, then they do dumb things, have moments where there's a little flash of brilliant Holy Spirit work inside a dead heart that make them say, can God separate himself from himself? Here's my point. Kids can get this. We don't dumb it down for them. I promise you, at the madrasa, they're not cartooning the Quran. But our kids derive their theology from veggie tales. And I like veggie tales. I can sing you, Madam Blueberry. Don't make me do it. <laughs> my point is, that can't be the sole method by which we teach them the gospel. We we can't let the culture dictate to us Christianity. Does that make sense? I'm going to throw another one on you here. Cultural Christianity creates really weird images. Jesus never says, invite me into your heart. I can't tell you how many little kids and how many big kids who are now grown up come to me and say, I can't tell you how that messed me up as a kid because I couldn't figure out how Jesus could come get down inside my heart. How about this language? Come follow me. Repent. Believe the gospel. That's what Jesus said. And there's nothing wrong. Listen, don't hear me just beating down. What I'm saying is cultural Christianity at its core on the surface may sound good and sweet and kind, but it could be rotten at the core. Because what's at stake is the gospel in these little lives. Let's use Jesus' language. Let's teach the gospel. Let's teach the gospels. Let's read the Bible. And let Holy Spirit sort those little things out in those little hearts and minds because He can. They, don't, they teach little Jewish boys to memorize the Torah before they're 12. It's a matter of what we give them. Cultural Christianity can come with disengaged parents passing their kids off for everybody else to teach other than them, censoring the Scriptures for their kids, when in fact those kids need to read those hard things in the Bible because Holy Spirit can teach them when you can't. It's an issue of trust. Do you trust Him? You think I'm a nerd? So be it. Part of our commute to school in the morning is taking that 20 minutes and for at least 15 of it, throw down on some good teaching so those minds have things to pull on. I played D.A. Carson for them by podcast. Yeah, and then when we pull up and I let them out, we're jamming to some Lecrae or Coldplay or something. But for 15 of that 20-minute commute, they're hearing Jesus' gospel Teaching because it's my responsibility to teach them the centerpiece of the Bible, the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. And it's going to be God who holds me accountable for my children. Cultural Christianity can be absolutely deadly and rotten. We have no discernment in cultural Christianity about the darkness of the evil one and the fact that we're in a spiritual war. Cultural Christianity accepts all kinds of practices that are horrid and dark and we think it's a fun game.
when in fact God cares passionately about the fame of his name and what we connect to Jesus? I'm going to close with this story found in your Bible. It's pretty crazy. Numbers chapter 25, we, we hit this very quickly uh, in our connect group this morning. Cultural Christianity ignores passages like this. When in fact they will preach the gospel to us. If we will read them. What we connect to the name of Jesus speaks to the character of Jesus. Jesus is not first love. He is holy. And his love then is holy. His love is not like your love. He doesn't practice British nicety. He's the creator of love and that love comes out of holiness. Okay? Tracking with that? So, so don't read on to Jesus this kind of just acceptance of all things because the attitude was right. That's not how he plays. He defines holiness as his dominant characteristic and from that flows righteousness, love, mercy, kindness, goodness, all those things. They're holy. Numbers. The people were told not to marry with the women of these other Countries because they would incorporate then their idolatrous worship practices into the worship of the Lord. And the Lord said, don't do that. Don't connect me with them. Because he's already said, when they worship, they're worshiping demons. There are no other gods. I'm it. So don't connect my name with them. Because I'm not a demon. I'm God and there's no other. So what's at stake? What's at stake in cultural Christianity is what do we connect the name of Jesus to? Is Jesus standing apart as the Son of God, the ruler of the universe, the King of all there is? Or are we connecting to His name a nice chain of weird things that have nothing to do with Jesus? Do we read on to Jesus and make Him look like Rob Bell? Or do we judge Rob Bell by what Jesus said? What's at stake is the fame of Jesus. Listen to this passage. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Love God's language. He calls the worship and incorporation of other religious practices into his worship whoring. It's okay to use the Bible's language. These invited the people... To the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Come worship with me. Come into my place. And, and see what we do. Participate with me. So the Lord. Or so Israel. Yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Israel. Identified themselves. With the name of the Lord to Baal. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. That the, listen, here's the reason, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. There's got to be some death for me to turn away my wrath. Start thinking cross. Moses said to the judges of each Israel, each of you kill those of his men who've yoked themselves to the bell of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite. Listen to this. Came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Do you get this image? They're weeping and, and being contrite over their sin. And God's giving instruction. And Moses is saying, we've got to go get rid of this. And as they are at the tent worshiping, one of them is bold enough to go take his woman, and walk her past the congregation in the sight of everybody, Moses and God, defying God's command. You see how bold that is? I mean, you read that and you're almost like, really? Did he just, uh-uh. He didn't. He did. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he said, well, man, maybe his heart's okay. Maybe his, 
I really don't know what his attitude, you know, just let him go. No, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And went after the man of Israel into the chamber. Didn't say what they're doing in the chamber, but he just flaunted his woman past the congregation, defying the command. And he pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. You think God won't kill to save? You better walk over to the cross and look up on it. Because the reality is that the plague of sin is stopped through the work of the cross. God sets His Son on the cross and executes Him to stop us from receiving any more wrath. So that if we repent and believe the gospel, the plague of sin is removed. We're made children of God and we are made right. God here sends one who's passionate for His name to kill one so that through that death there, there would be the stopping of the plague. You can preach the gospel from the Old Testament. And number two, God cares about His name and what it's connected to. Cultural Christianity does not care about that. It just cares that we get more people and more people come and people are happy and satisfied and they check off on their card or they give their money so we keep doing our deal. Listen, we cannot be cultural Christians. We have to be gospel Christians. We have to personally live out the implications of the gospel where Jesus, his person, worker, center, beginning, middle, and end. We are all about Jesus. That's being awake. Personally. And I don't have time to go locally and globally. We'll do that next week. We have to be awake. And guys, I'm telling you, being awake is staying in, guarding, and preaching the gospel. There is no other way our town will be saved. There is no other way the nations will be saved except through the preaching of the gospel. Do you want to be part of a church like that? That holds the name of Jesus higher than any other name? That sees Jesus as worthy of more honor. That says Jesus is worth laying down my life for. Jesus is, is it. I'm, all, I'm in for Jesus. I want the King. I'm all about King Jesus. Guys, that's how the nations will be won. That's how Floyd County will be won. That's how we will be preserved. Is remaining in the gospel. Here's my invitation to you. Number one. Shoot me text messages like last two weeks ago. I need some good fodder to hit on the blog. We need to hit this hard. Send me text messages. I love them. Email me questions. We'll hit them. I'll even address them some on Sunday mornings. Number two. My invitation to you this week is to go and answer the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Use your Bible first. It's in there. Just look for the word gospel. It's amazing. It's there. Go answer the question, what is the gospel? You know because you come here. We say it all the time. But just go read it and go marinate on it. Love it. Soak it in. Memorize it. Let it become the salt of your life. Then third, I want to invite you this morning and all week to respond in worship. In song. Worshiping Him because He is holy. He is so absolutely astoundingly amazing that I'm afraid and excited all at the same time. Both of those are okay. Okay. Run to Him and sing to Him. There's a footnote to that third part of our invitation. I don't know about you, but I sing these songs all week in my head. We sing gospel here, if you hadn't noticed. And as you engage in that song, engage mentally that, wow, this is, this, is, this is good. Engage spiritually, let your heart take delight in the gospel. And emotively, enjoy. 
drink deeply of the grace of God to us in Christ to save us, make us right, and give us nothing but goodness, kindness, and mercy. That he would kill his son to give me life. I think we can all enjoy that for a little bit this morning, can we not? Let me pray for you and then we'll roll. Father, uh, we desperately need you more and more and more. Jesus, we want to taste you more and more and more. We want to be awake. We don't want to be asleep. I don't want to be asleep. I don't, I don't want to have the invasion of my culture. I don't want to have the invasion of being disengaged. I don't, I don't want to have the invasion of anything that would pervert the gospel and cause me to be asleep to the fact that I am wavering. That I'm missing the mark. That all I am is an external veneer. I, I, I just want, just want Jesus. I want to be awake. I want to keep the gospel personally. Father, I pray today that you would cause your people to be that. Father, sometimes my desire doesn't always work itself out into action. I'm a failure often. But I lean on your righteousness, Lord Jesus. And I think all of us are probably in that boat a little bit. So I just want to ask this morning that you would help us to delight in the gospel. That we would delight in you. That our desire would grow stronger to be more like you. That our desire would be to be awake and love the gospel. Live in the gospel. Soak in the gospel. Preach the gospel daily. Holy Spirit, would you guide us into truth and and lead us into life. And help us to make much of you this morning. This is your church, Jesus. Three Rivers and all of those in Floyd County, Georgia, the country and the world who love the gospel. We're your people, so we just ask you to minister to us by your spirit now. Lead us into truth. Move us. Shake us. Love on us. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as we sing to you, we pray you would delight in that.